Now for our first message, Mr. Curtis Whiteley with a message entitled, Dining with Tax Collectors. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone here today uh, on a beautiful Sabbath day, and I was told that we have some listeners online, or I was asked to give a wave to my Aunt Jeanette, who's listening online, and sometimes it's easy to forget about those individuals that we have out there in the virtual world. Well, my message today is entitled, Dining with Tax Collectors. And sometimes we hear another term used for tax collectors. Sometimes we hear the term Republicans. I mean, publicans, excuse me. <laughs> Actually, that was kind of funny. I was reading through uh, some of my notes uh, earlier, and I, was, uh, I had put in there a little note that uh, I was talking about tax collectors. And sometimes, some translations use the term publicans. And I just accidentally said Republican by accident. So it's, it's uh, really not how I feel about uh, the Republican Party or anything like that. But the primary text that we're going to look at today is found in Mark, the second chapter, verses 13 through 17. I'm just going to kind of read through this and just kind of delve into it. Because this story, I think, has a lot of significance, just like every other story in the Bible does, of course. I think we would all believe it's, it's God's inspired word. But we're all different. You know, we're all different individuals. We all come from different backgrounds. So sometimes stories, you know, resonate with us a little bit differently than maybe other stories do. But in Mark, the second chapter, in verse 13, it says this, Then he went out again, speaking about Jesus, by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many, for there were many and they followed him. And when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And right here we find what I like to call one of those head-turning stories. The reason I say that is, is because this is an event that really, if you were living in the first century, if you were present, this was kind of a head-turner. This was bizarre. This was strange. Not so much strange to me and you living in 2015. And this portion of Scripture is just one little story out of many, before and after. And that's a very interesting part of the scriptures is that this story is couched in between other head-turning stories because just before this, Jesus had cleansed a leper. And when he did it, he touched a leper, something that would have been off-limits, even according to what is prescribed and outlined in the law. Jesus also hears a paralytic, someone who has some paralysis, and he, at the end, declared this man to be forgiven. 
So this section of Scripture is what I like to call, I mean, there's others too, but the head-turning events of Jesus. The ones that really just challenge the traditional ways that people thought about things. And that's what perplexed people about Jesus. Here you have this individual, no formal education about himself, obviously understands the Scriptures uh, in their entirety in, an, in a way that was not as familiar with his hearers. The religious authorities, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, among others, they had a different way of looking at the Scriptures. And Jesus came and He challenged these different things that, that they had traditionally thought and these different teachings and these different influences that they had traditionally been, uh, different influences and different ways that they had traditionally thought about the Scriptures. But what we see in this passage is we see that Jesus encounters a guy by the name of Levi. He's, he's said that he goes out and he starts walking by the sea. And as he's walking by the sea, he encounters this man named Levi. Now, me and you, we more commonly know him as Matthew. Matthew is the same individual as Levi, and we know from historical research and scholars have touched upon this, that uh, during this period of time, it wasn't uncommon for individuals to have more than one name, especially in the region of Galilee, where sometimes Jews would have a strictly Jewish name, and then they would also have a Galilean name. But what's so striking about this individual is what he did for a living. You see, Matthew, or Levi, whichever one you prefer, was a tax collector. And we've heard who tax collectors are. We've heard that in the scriptures before. But if you were living in the first century, if you were living in this period of time, you would know that this is one of the most utterly despised class of people by Jews. In fact, tax collectors became the symbols for some of the worst kinds of individuals that lived there in that region of Israel or Judea or Palestine. Their job was simple, collect taxes. But the ones who collected the taxes were the Romans. The occupiers, the one who had stormed into this region that we sometimes refer to as the Holy Land and controlled it. And see, the big problem with tax collectors is that they weren't just working for the government, but they were extortionist. You see, the Romans allowed these individuals to not just collect taxes, but to collect even more than what the Roman Empire had required. And so when a tax collector would, 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 would take more from an individual than even what the Roman Empire would require, what would they do with it? They would pocket that money. So as you can imagine, if you were living in the first century and you were Jewish, you looked at these individuals as traitors, thieves. Not only did they demonstrate a lack of loyalty and a lack of adherence to the law of God and to the covenant, but they have betrayed their own countrymen, decided to get rich, to get wealthy off the backs of their innocent people, fellow man and fellow women. The interesting thing is Jesus' response, though. Despite him being a tax collector, despite him being a part of one of the most important portions of society, Jesus does not 
hesitate to ask this individual to follow him. Now, oftentimes when we read this story, we always think about, wow, Jesus, even people such as a tax collector, he didn't brush away, that he didn't brush off. But today, I kind of want to take a panorama view, not just of Jesus, but also of Levi, of Matthew, the one who's engaging in this truly abhorrent profession. Let's just think about this. The scriptures tells us this, that Jesus invites this individual who's a tax collector, who is a part of a group that really did victimize their fellow Jewish brethren. But at the same time, we also see that Matthew doesn't hesitate to follow Jesus. Let's just think about it from Levi's point of view. What would it entail for Matthew to leave the tax collecting business and follow Jesus? First of all, it would entail leaving a very secure and, may I even add, profitable job, despite it being done through an ethical means. It also meant that he could never return. No matter what happens, he decides to follow Jesus. No matter what happens, if this Jesus phase doesn't turn out, if it doesn't go well, if it doesn't work out in the end, Matthew is not going to be able to go back to that cushy job that he had. We see that the apostles, the other ones, such as Peter and Andrew and James and John, they were fishermen. And they left their fishermen business to go and follow Jesus. But as soon as Jesus was crucified, what we find at the end of the Gospels is what they're doing is they're going back to their profession. And so not to take anything away from Peter, from John, from James, from Andrew, the, the fishermen, but we have to maybe think about it sometimes, what Matthew gave up, despite it being obviously evil, and we'll get to that in a little while, this must have truly been a genuine response to Jesus. Not only that, but going back, leaving the tax collecting business, and trying to come back into the fold must have been difficult and scary at the same time as well. Matthew understood what he had done. He understood as a tax collector that he had literally been considered an outcast to his fellow countrymen, that he had been ostracized, that there were very strict laws about how to deal with tax collectors when it came to what they could and could not participate in later on. They couldn't be a judge or a witness in a court, in a Jewish court like the Sanhedrin. They could not come into the synagogue, or at least for a period of time. These are the things that we know. But nevertheless, we see that Levi, or Matthew, still heeded the call, the invitation to Jesus. And after this, the next part of the story, it even gets more interesting. That is, is that we find Jesus in the middle of a feast that's being put on. Luke's account says that Levi put this banquet feast on for Jesus. And Jesus engages in a meal with these tax collectors and quote-unquote sinners. You know, today, eating with people still has a lot of meaning. But I don't think it quite has the same meaning that it did in the first century. In the first century world, in the ancient Near East, 
dining with somebody was more than just fellowshipping with them. When you invited someone in to dine with you, it was a pledge of loyalty. It was a pledge of protection. Literally, it was accepting friendship and fellowship with that individual. It was one of the most intimate things you could do with people to sit down and at the same table eat with them. We see that this is such a big deal in the epistle to the Galatians. This was an issue with certain individuals of even the apostles getting up when certain Jews were present and not eating with Gentiles because they knew of the criticism that they would get. Joachim Jeremiah, who is a late New Testament scholar who had studied the ancient Near East quite in-depthly, said this about eating or dining with individuals at this period of time. It was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. And in short, sharing a table meant sharing life. So we can understand maybe what's getting ready to come. When Jesus is sitting down to eat a meal with these individuals, we understand the ramifications in this day and age sharing a meal meant. And we know that perplexed the religious leaders. We know that the next thing that takes place is that you have this very influential group. The scribes and the Pharisees coming to Jesus, and if we, we've all heard of who the scribes and Pharisees were, and we know that many scribes were part of the Pharisaic party. Josephus says that at this period of time, there was over 6,000 Pharisees that existed. So they were a very influential religious group, and to an extent, political group. They greatly influenced the ways in which people thought about the scriptures, about how you were supposed to live out uh, what they considered to be the proper traditions as been passed down through time. But the problem was, was that many of them went beyond that. Many of them had an attitude that if you do not follow things just like we follow them, then you're not doing it right. And of course, they're the only religious group in history that thinks that if you don't do things the way they do it, you're not doing it right. We know that this is a common theme among humans. But the Pharisees, they question Jesus' associations. They question, you know, they're looking at Jesus. You know, they're very careful with who they eat with, who they, you know, let alone speak to. Now, not all of them. Many of them were probably very genuine, uh, really genuinely tried to do the right thing, tried to follow God the best they could, despite the situations that they were put in. But in their minds, we have to think about what they were probably thinking. They were probably saying in themselves, you know, how could anyone, talking about Jesus, who espoused themselves to be a religious leader, a teacher of the Scriptures, how could anyone in that position allow themselves to associate with one of the most important groups of people? So that's the question we have to ask ourselves. They're probably thinking, what kind of example is he setting? He's a role model to his followers, and look at the example, the precedent that he's setting. The interesting thing is how Jesus responds. And I think that he responds, of course, in spiritual terms, because I know that sometimes people can take this to be a literal 
you know, maybe approximation of, you know, trying to equate people's sins with their health. But Jesus' response is really simple. The healthy don't need a physician, but it's the sick that do. Here Jesus likens those as healthy as righteous and those as sick as sinners. And this is a common way of trying to get a point across by teachers of this day. Using the analogies of physicians. Using the analogies of teachers. Jesus here is giving us the purpose of his coming. And that is to restore those who have become spiritually sick back to spiritual health. And we know that this is the core theme. This is the message of so many of his parables, specifically that parable of the lost sheep. So, as we've went through this and try to point out some details, we have to now come to the question of, you know, we see this story, now asking ourselves, what can we learn from this head-turning example? And I think that there are many things. I think that this story can apply to us in many ways. But in a lot of ways, and when I was looking at it this week, I thought to myself, you know what? Levi's story in a lot of ways, is our story. You know, no matter where we start in life as individuals, and we all start in different places, even if it is the most hated, lowly, and decrepit spot, nothing is impossible with God. You know, on the way here, me and my mother, were, we rode together with my son Asher, and we were talking about uh, things, and we were talking about the idea that if God wants something to happen, it'll happen. Because so many people are so worried about this and that. and Let's get the temple built in Israel. Let's get things going, all these things. And we just, we're talking about, you know what, when God wants something to happen, it'll happen. Or at least, if he makes his mind up that this is what's going to happen, it's going to happen. And we were talking about, you know, the children of Israel. And we were talking about how not only were they enslaved... But you would think that they probably came and said at the river, oh, man, we want to get across, but there's a river here. God didn't say, oh, man, I didn't think this through. God says, yeah, so what? Boom, what happens? The river is divided, and there's a way, there's a path. Nothing is impossible with God. And you know what? A lot of people probably thought to themselves, that someone in a position as lowly as tax collectors, there probably was no help for them. They were so wretched and decrepit that nothing that they ever did, they probably would never ever try to come back. They probably never would try to do anything. They're, let's think about it this way. Not only when Jesus saw Levi was he a tax collector, but he saw him at the tax booth. He was engaging in that you know, tra you know, treacherous uh, occupation right there in front of Jesus. He was actively taking part in the corrupt system of the occupying Roman forces and benefiting off the backs of his hardworking countrymen. So a lot of people just wrote him off, most likely thinking that he could never be you know, brought back, either because he'll never try to come back or because he was just so evil that there was no way that there could ever be any help for him. And I was starting to think about that, and I was just starting to think about the biblical story in general this week. 
And I thought, you know what? The Bible is full of basically individuals in between a rock and a hard place. And I might even add, a lot of those stories, it's their fault. It's because they put themselves in that situation. Some of them, it's not because it's their fault. And that's what's so beautiful about the story that we have been presented to us, is that it's about individuals who have stumbled, who are imperfect. It's about a story of reconciliation. And I think that this is what this story is about. It's about reconciliation. Whether it be through natural causes that we somehow got into in between a rock and a hard place, or our own fault, because we chose evil. Nothing's impossible with God. And we can just think all the way back from the, from the beginning. The very earliest book of the entire Bible. So many stories. One of them that you know, I think of is Joseph. He's in an Egyptian jail with a very volatile king or pharaoh. That's, you know, killing people if they don't say the right thing. That's a rock and a hard place. Israel, we already kind of went over that, in Egypt. We talk about tax collectors being in one of the, you know, one of the most hated groups of people. Slaves were extremely hated. Now, of course, they liked them in the work that they provided, but they did not afford them any luxury and look at them of any social status whatsoever in this period of time. David, we can look at him, both on the run for his life and also being punished by God because of his own sins. People who are in dire situations because of their own sin or just because of the circumstances that they were put in. Daniel, being at the mercy of lions, all in all through the Bible, even to the New Testament, where we find people suffering from all types of ailments, including paralysis, blindness, deafness, and even death, and may I even add, their own self-induced sin that they got themselves into by becoming something, something as lowly and decrepit as a tax collector. You know, just a few days ago, I was watching a movie. Everyone probably here has seen it. Most people have. The movie Tombstone. Uh, the movie Tombstone with Kurt Russell about Wyatt Earp and his brother, uh, his brother Morgan Earp. And there's a part in that movie in the very beginning that really kind of struck a chord with me and it has, you know, in previous times that I've seen it. But the brother of Wyatt Earp, whose name is Morgan Earp in this story, uh, he's being played Morgan Earp by the actor Bill Paxton. He walks out side in one of the early parts scenes in the movie and he makes this comment he says would you look at all those stars I mean you look up and you think God made all of that and he still remembered to make a little speck like me on a nice spring day or fall day or summer night when you're outside and there's a clear sky and you have a very clear view of the heavenly bodies that are up there. It very much so is a very humbling experience. And in brief, not only did God remember to make a little speck like us, but even when we were created, put here, and then rebelled against God, He's still ready to forgive us. He's still ready for us to come back, to be brought back as a lost sheep. Despite this, despite, you know, all of us, we can say, we, you know, all of us were tax collectors one point in time, in our own way. Maybe not tax collector like Levi. Maybe we really weren't a part of a, an important part of society. Maybe we were. Despite any of this, what we do know 
is that God is always ready to extend the hand of fellowship when genuine repentance actually comes. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And we know how important and how intimate going to eat with someone was in this period of time. And we know that God, here in this period of time, today, not only has extended His hand of fellowship, but also has pledged that if we accept Him and His Savior, and His Son, Jesus Christ, to not only just have fellowship with us, but to make their abode with us. It's pretty humbling. So my second point, which is where I want to get to the most, the, the core of this story for me and the way to apply it, as I think about it, I just want to say, be strong and firm in God's ways. But be careful in writing people off and giving the impression that we are unable to help. I just want to focus on that first part. Now, Jesus, in this story, we have some Pharisees and Sadducees, or not Sadducees, rather, but scribes of the Pharisees and that were a part of this political religious group that came to his disciples and says, what's going on here? Why is he eating? Why are you guys eating with tax collectors and sinners? That was the question brought up before them. But you know what? If there was any chance that Jesus and his disciples were engaging in any kind of practices or behavior that was sinful, that was questionable, we can be assured that these religious figures would have pointed that out, but they don't. So obviously, Jesus and his disciples, despite eating with sinners and tax collectors, they were behaving themselves kosherly. And so, I don't think the story can tell us that we need to go out and hang out with sinners like sometimes we almost hear out in the world where people say, you know, you, you want to become like the people to reach them for God, where you're almost to the point where you're engaging in sinful activity. That's not something that is ever preached in the Bible. But what we can see, and what we can think about, and what we don't know, is we don't know what Levi was thinking just before Jesus gave him an invitation. Maybe, just maybe, Levi had regretted becoming a tax collector. Maybe he had come to realize the ungodliness of it. Maybe he had come to realize what he was doing to his fellow countrymen. Maybe, in his heart, he was thinking about ways he could maybe be reconciled back to the community. Reconciled back to his countrymen. You know, in the example, we know that Jesus' Jesus's day was full of Jewish people who had a very specific opinion, as we went over, about these tax collectors. And what they thought about these tax collectors, and when we actually study the history, rightfully so. Because a lot of them did engage in some very important practices and victimize their fellow Jewish brethren. But, is it possible that maybe Levi, in his heart, wanted to know if there's a way to be reconciled back to God, but understood the abhorrence and the absolute disdain that he had got himself into from his fellow countrymen that he never even tried. Just maybe, this isn't how he thought at all. Maybe he was selfish, just like many of the Pharisees talked about them being selfish, and many of the Jews thought about until he met Jesus. 
But one thing I do know is that we can apply this story in today. And I'm sure that there are people out there that are engaged in sinful things that in their heart of hearts, maybe they are looking for a way that they can return. A way to be reconciled back, maybe to their family, maybe to church, maybe the people that they have, you know, hurt. But they don't know where to start because they've been cut off. Maybe there's people that we might come across that feel just like that. So in conclusion today, be strong in the Lord, but do so without completely shutting the door. Now let me preface that by saying, we obviously live in a very dangerous world. A very unpredictable world, a world that, you know, unfortunately you turn on the news, we know that you know, some very awful things go on. And sometimes people, we have to be very diligent in the way we carry ourselves the way we deal with people that we don't know real well. But one thing I do know is that despite this, despite this continual corruption of the world, our charge doesn't change. Our charge is still to be a light to the world. Our charge is still to always be ready to forgive people who genuinely come to us in repentance and genuinely are demonstrating that they are wanting to change their ways. This must be the message that we broadcast to people. Not just by our preaching, but by our living, but by the way we live the word. For this message, for living the message, will always speak much louder than we can ever preach it.